All right, 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. We're going to consider verses 1 through 15 this morning. Just a quick reminder of where we've been uh, thus far in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul greeted the church at Corinth, and he came bearing a message from God. And God's message to them was grace and peace. And then Paul spent a little bit of time in chapter 1 discussing reasons he was thankful and, and how he prayed with thanksgiving for the Corinthians. And then he moved to an appeal in chapter 1 that really has been flowing throughout the rest of 1 and chapter 2 and is going to continue in chapter 3. He gave this appeal that I appeal that all of you be agreed and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. All right? And Paul built on this appeal to be united by talking about the wisdom of God. In fact, it might have looked like he had abandoned that appeal when actually he was giving reasons that we should be united and agreed. And so he presented the wisdom of God that was on display most evidently in the cross. So God's wisdom is evident in the word of the cross. And then he brought up the Corinthians' own conversion. He said God's wisdom was evident in your own conversion because he didn't save the wise and the powerful, but the weak and, and then the few. And then he brought up the way that his own ministry, he conducted his own ministry. So Paul didn't come with wise words and with speech. He came with the wisdom and the power of God. And then, even as we considered with, with Jeremy the last time we were in uh, Corinthians, the, the power that comes through the Spirit and how the Spirit turns natural men and, and gives them ability that they wouldn't otherwise have because of the Spirit's power. So that's where we have been to, to this point. We get to chapter number 3, and when we hit chapter 3, uh, something's about to happen to the Corinthians. Paul's been talking about wisdom, he's been giving principles, he's been talking in somewhat general terms, and when you get to chapter number three, Paul's going Paul's to kind of pull out the, the club version, all right? So he's made an appeal, and the Corinthians don't know it, but they're about to kind of get a big stick, <laughs> all right? So this is the part where he says, and now we're going to have to go to the woodshed to see how this, how this works out, because Paul is about to make the rubber meet the road. This is the application point. So if this were a sermon, this would be Paul saying, and here's the so what, all right? So what are you going to do with what I've said about the wisdom of God? Chapter 3 is the answer to the so what question, all right? God's wisdom has been displayed at the cross in the Corinthians' conversion and Paul's preaching, the Spirit's teaching, and that wisdom has a direct connection to the Corinthians' life. And that wisdom has a direct connection to their evaluation of Paul and of Apollos and other servants, But unfortunately, to this point, the Corinthians have totally been missing the big idea, all right? And so Paul is going to bring application to bear. And I think this is the point, the the big idea that we should get from this passage this morning. God's wisdom should determine how we look at God's servants, all right? God's wisdom should determine how we look at God's servants. So he's been talking about wisdom, wisdom here, wisdom there, wisdom there. Now he's going to make the point just painfully evident This wisdom of God has a direct connection to the infighting that's going on at Corinth, to the divisions, to the preferences. God's wisdom has something to say about it, all right? In verses 1 through 4, we're going to find out that fleshly Christians don't evaluate servants well. In verses 5 to 9, we're going to discover that servants don't deserve credit. God does. And in verses 10 to 15, we're going to see that servants get their rewards from God. And all this is going to help us realize that God's wisdom should determine how we look at God's servants, not human wisdom. All right, so 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 1. He's been talking about the spiritual person judging all things, and then he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, 
but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He's making this point in these first four verses. Fleshly Christians don't evaluate servants well, and the Corinthians were actually very, very fleshly. This is... This is a sharp reprimand from the Apostle Paul. He softens at the beginning. He says, but I, brothers, brothers and sisters, family members, so I want to talk to you as family members, and that softens a little bit, but you can't miss what he's saying in these verses, right? I mean, look at what he says. I could not address you as spiritual people, but I had to talk to you as people of the flesh, all right? So he's been talking about the spiritual person, the person that's that has God's spirit and that understands things. And he comes to them and he says, I couldn't talk to you as if you were a spiritual person. Uh, instead, I had to talk to you as you were a person of the flesh. Right? Now, it's important to understand that a person of the flesh, that's not the same word he used for the natural person in the verses preceding. All right? He's not saying that they're natural as in they're unconverted. He's saying that, that, that they are so immature that they haven't gone beyond elementary principles. They are still bound up by what their flesh tells them to think. Their world is still influencing their perceptions. So I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people, as people who use God's judgment to evaluate life. I had to talk to you as people who use the world's judgment of life. He doesn't say they're unconverted. He just says they're bound up in their flesh. Notice he says, you're people of the flesh, you're infants in Christ. So he's not calling their salvation in a testimony. They're in Christ. It's just that they're being infants in Christ. The thing about the Corinthians is that they had a lot of, they had a big confidence problem, all right? Their confidence problem was that they didn't have enough. Their confidence problem was they had way too much, all right? They had all kinds of confidence in themselves, and, and they were very confident that they were ready for a big boy diet, and Paul comes to them, and he says otherwise. He, they, they think that they're spiritual. They think that they're full. They, they, they think grandiose thoughts of themselves, and we're going to see that later on in the book too. They think they're very mature. And Paul comes to them, and he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. I, I have to treat you like a baby. You think, you think you're this mature adult, and actually, in reality, you're kind of being a baby. And I mean, frankly, this stings, right? I mean, they're hearing this from the apostle. Uh, it's, it might be okay to be a baby when you're first born. It's not okay when you're a 12-year-old, all right? It, that's, that's not a nice thing to hear. So if you told Meg you're acting like a baby this morning, not a problem, all right? If I told one of your nine-year-olds that they're being a baby, this is, this is not very encouraging to them, all right? This is insulting, and the Corinthians would have been insulted. But Paul has reasons for this stinging rebuke, all right? The Corinthian church was somewhere in the four to seven years old mark, all right? Judging from when Paul's second missionary journey happened and when he wrote this, this church has been around. It's, it's not as if this is um, their, their first time hearing about Christ. They're, they're somewhere in the four to eight year mark. And, and Paul says, you'd think that you'd be ready for more, but you're not. In fact, I'm still having, I had to give you milk. What's he mean when he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. All right? There, there are some who, who would read that and they would say, um, milk is basically, um, it's just like the gospel. 
All right, so he, he, only, he had already talked in the previous chapters about giving them the gospel. So he only gave them the gospel. He didn't go on to, to other things that, that were more meaty. Right? I think, I think there, is a dang, that there can be a dangerous assumption if that's what we think is milk. And that is that the gospel becomes something that we need when we're converted and we need when we're young and immature, but we need something else when we grow up. All right, we need to get more mature, so we need to move on from, let's leave the gospel ABCs behind, and let's go on to, to bigger and better things. And I don't think that's Paul's point here at all. Just like I don't think it's the writer of Hebrews' point, when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Do you know what happens when he says, let's, not, let's leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ? Do you know what he moves on to in the rest of Hebrews? What he moves on to from the elementary doctrine of Christ and the gospel, he moves on to the priesthood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and the heavenly intercession of Christ and the new covenant mediated by Christ and the future return of Christ. All right? So, so even the writer of Hebrews, he doesn't see the elementary doctrine of Christ as the gospel we leave behind, but rather as something that we go deeper into. And I think that's Paul's point here. One writer said, in other words, the writer of Hebrews and Paul here, he doesn't move on from the gospel. He moves deeper into the gospel. He doesn't leave the gospel behind, but he claws his way into more and more of its riches. So it's not about leaving behind elementary teachings. Instead, it means diving into the deep end instead of splashing around in the shallows. All right? Paul says you're still splashing around in the shallows of the gospel when, when we should be able to talk about deeper things of the gospel. The Corinthian problem was not that they knew the gospel so well that they needed something new to work on. It's that they were failing to love and apply the very gospel that should have been informing their behavior. If the gospel only means something that's the moment of salvation to us, then I'm concerned that we'd be in the exact same spot of, of milky immaturity. Milkly immaturity. I don't know, whatever the word is for still needing milk. That's a moment of immaturity. We're supposed to progress beyond that to a deeper, more soul-satisfying, more daily applied, more appreciated reality of the gospel. Because the gospel itself is what would have changed the Corinthians from being so fleshly in the first place. Instead, they were acting just like unredeemed humanity. Look at verse 3. He says, "'Cause you are still of the flesh.'" For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? All right? He says, you're still acting like a human. All right? And he's like, what's the insult in that? Well, obviously he's saying you're acting like a natural human. You're acting like a human that the gospel hasn't had any effect on. That's what he's saying. All right? you, this behavior of strife and jealousy and fighting, this is ungospel behavior. And, and instead of being able to get to the depths of the gospel that actually changes how you live and how you think, you're still, you're still miring around in this immaturity. He says you're still characterized by flesh and not by the spirit. And because the Corinthians lack the maturity for the meat, they actually cut themselves off from the wisdom of God in the cross that they actually needed to finally grow up. And they didn't even realize how foolish and fleshly they were being. Because the reality is that the church is no place for maneuvering for position and status and to be wrangling for one's own perspective or their favorite champion. The divisions that were going on in Corinth were an ongoing witness to their worldly mentality, not to the depth of their spiritual perception. 
So they were having these debates about who was greater and which party they wanted to be a part of. That wasn't maturity. That wasn't gospel maturity. That was fleshly immaturity. So I think we can even stop at, stop at this section when, when Paul says, if there's jealousy and strife among you, you're behaving only in, in a human way. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Are you not being merely human? Where is their application for us in this? I think most obviously, if we have jealousy and strife, in, even in our own church over personalities, then this same critique is true of us, right? We are also immature and fleshly if, if we find division jealousy and strife over people. And it's a devastating critique to say that we're being merely human, being like a natural person. This is, this is being like the people that don't receive the things of God. So when Paul says you're still being human, this is a, this is a powerful critique. You're, he's saying you're, you're calling into question all that, you, all that you say when you say you're a spiritual person if you have jealousy and strife and division. Because the opposite of being merely human is being the spiritual person, the one who actually accepts the wisdom of God in the cross and recognizes the wisdom of God in the gospel and acts like it. Reality is that even Christian people can act like an unbeliever and can be immature. I think some people have even wrongly looked at these verses and they've even said there's like two classes of Christian people. There's like, there's carnal Christians and then there's like spiritual Christians and, and you need to get out of the carnal Christian group and get into the spiritual Christian group. I don't think Paul sees this kind of division. He doesn't say that it's okay to be carnal, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't paint this picture of like some Christians are really carnal and some are really spiritual because I think you probably know this reality to be true. There are elements even in your own life that are marked by carnality or of the flesh, and there are other parts of your life where, where maybe you see the Spirit's activity more than others. We can be simultaneously spiritual and fleshly. And, and we all have that in different elements. It, it might be something different for you. For the Corinthians, it was their jealousy and strife. Um, for you, it might be a totally different issue. Maybe, maybe it's greed or maybe it's laziness. Or I, I mean, I don't know what it is, but you can be at the same time spiritual and at the same time have some kind of immaturity in you. And the point is that we have to root it out and we root it out through the gospel, all right? We root it out through the gospel. So we have, to, we have to be willing to recognize that even as Christian people, we can still be marked by those old habits of the flesh, and we have to fight that. What stops jealousy and strife? What, what would have dealt with the jealousy and strife of the Corinthian church, just like what will deal with any of our numerous immaturities? And the answer is the gospel and the wisdom of God. That's why Paul spent all this time, we've spent all these last weeks talking about God's wisdom because that's what they needed to deal with their jealousy and strife. And it's what we need too. So we, we don't need more guilt or more shame or more duty, but we need grace to teach us to grow up, all right? This is Paul basically looking at the Corinthians as an apostle and he's telling them, you guys really need to grow up. That's what he's telling them, all right? The reason is that fleshly people don't evaluate servants well. But he gets to verses 5 to 9, and he's going to tell them, servants don't deserve credit, God does. All right, Because God's wisdom ought to be what determines how we look at God's servants. And so here's wisdom from God. Verse number 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Servants don't deserve credit. God deserves credit. Notice Paul starts verse number five by saying, what is Apollos? What is Paul? He doesn't even say, who are they? He says, what are they? Because you've got all these Corinthians and they're saying, ooh, Paul's Paul's my guy. Uh, Apollos is my leader. And Paul says, what are we? What are we? Because if you wrongly identify the servants of God, uh, then you're going to wrongly attach yourself to him. He says, what are we? And what he answers is, we're just servants. They're not, they're not masters to belong to. I mean, the, the Corinthians are going, I'm going to attach myself to him, and I'm going to put myself under him. And Paul says, we're just servants. They're, they're, not, they're not rabbis to attach yourself to. They're not Greek philosophers that, that you sit and you follow them all around the city and everything. They, they, this is not what they are. They're just servants. For a church that prized itself in the wisdom of the world, the Corinthians would not have appreciated hearing that, that they were just following around servants. All right? this, this actually is countering their, their concept of we attach ourselves to the biggest and the best and the greatest. And Paul says, you keep bragging about I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter. You're bragging about belonging to another slave. That's what it is. You're, you're bragging that you belong to a slave. Paul is quick to make the point that that he and other Christian leaders are just servants. He says, what are we? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. All right, we're servants. You believed through us. You didn't believe in us, right? It wasn't Paul that they were believing in. The gospel is not about Apollos. They're just servants who brought a message. And then he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one who gave the growth. So Paul did a unique work even in the church at Corinth. He planted. There was work that he did. And Apollos came along and he watered that work. But the ultimate answer of where anything came from is God. God was the one who gave the growth. And so therefore, because that's true, verse number seven, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. All right, he's using an obvious agricultural metaphor, right? God was the one who made the thing grow. So you don't praise the guy who put the seed in the ground. Uh, You don't praise the guy who then followed up with a water bucket and poured water on it. There's something that made that seed grow. And it wasn't the guy who put the seed in the ground. It wasn't even the guy that dumped the water on it. it. It was God. All right, God is the one who gives growth. So that means that planters or waters aren't anything. Servants are nothing when it comes to deserving credit. One writer, um, one commentator said this, servant leadership is required precisely because servanthood is the basic stance of all truly Christian behavior. This is what leadership looks like in Jesus' perspective. It looks like service. So Christ himself, he, sh- he led by example. He didn't come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was the one who showed us by example to kneel before his own disciples and to wash their feet. And he said, let the greatest among you, let him be your servant. So far from praising and exalting a person or a personality, God's wisdom says, look at Christian leaders as just servants. Reality is that Paul and Apollos, 
they could not produce spiritual results themselves. They couldn't do it. They, they were unable to give the Corinthians spiritual life or to even to bring them to maturity. That's something that only God can do. So the servants, their job is just to plant or just to water. But God is the one who, who brings any kind of growth. That's why he says in verse number eight, he who plants and he who waters are one. What's he mean when he says the planter and the water are one? He's saying they're, they're equal. They're on, the, they're, on the same, they're on the same page. They're on the same team. And they're on the same playing field. They're, they're one. You don't, you don't say that the planter is more important than the waterer. Um, the, guy that, the guy that finishes bringing someone to Christ is more important than the guy that starts. This is not ranking. They're, they're one. They're one and the same. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. But God is the one who brings the growth. God is the one who is ultimately to be praised. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's, he's popping the balloon of people that are going to venerate him or any other Christian leader. He's taking himself and everyone else off the pedestal that the Corinthians had put them on. Right? One commentator humorously said, um, both are losing their heads in, in one whack. All right? So Paul and Paulus, he's going, Whoosh. no, we're just servants. And the reason is that servants don't deserve credit, but God does. Now, to do this is not insulting to any faithful pastor or any leader because biblical leaders realize that they're just servants. And so they're actually not out to get admiration or praise or status. So you have these Corinthians and they're attaching themselves to Paul and Apollos. And without a doubt, Paul and Apollos are grieved that there are people that are attaching themselves to their name. Because Paul isn't out to make a name for himself. He's not out to be, he doesn't want to have the most Corinthians following him. So he puts himself as servant just like everybody else, just like Apollos, just like Peter. He wipes the slate with everybody because it's not about following a person. All right? this, this doesn't equal disrespect or overthrow roles of leadership. It just puts things in the right perspective. All right? And the right perspective is Christian leaders are just servants. And that's the wisdom of God. All right? Um, we, uh, Kathy and I have this expression in our house that, that um, we laugh about. After reading an article, I came home and I said, hey, we've got to read this together and we've got to talk about it because I really like what the guy had to say. Uh, specifically, the article had to do with uh, pastors and their wives. Um, but, the, but the phrase that he used uh, was that he thought every pastor's wife should be supportive but unimpressed. All right, and so this is this is now like a code in my house where we'll we'll say you know she'll say I'm being supportive but I'm not very impressed. Um, so if I do something, and, and there are times that I feel like there should be a little more being impressed with me, and uh, and she'll think, well, actually, you just need support. You don't need me to be as impressed as you think I do. Uh, and there'll there'll be other times that it goes the other way. But supportive but unimpressed is a way to kind of evaluate. Look. Christian leaders are leaders because God wants them to be, but they're not, they're not people that we bow down in front of and, and that everything they do is great and, and we're impressed all the time uh, because we're not going to be impressed all the time. We're only impressed all the time with Jesus. And so supportive but unimpressed uh, is a phrase we use in my home, and I think that it kind of gets to some of the perspective. Paul's looking for a perspective here on leadership. And the perspective is not that, that servants are totally inconsequential. It's that they're not the ones who deserve the credit. All right? So when we talk about credit and praise, it goes to God because he's the one who gives growth. And servants, they're just servants. That's what they are. Doesn't mean we mistreat Christian leaders. Certainly shouldn't mean that. But it means that we don't have to be awed and super impressed either. 
all right? Maybe some application even here uh, before, we, before we move on. Uh, is it possible that you have wrongly put Christian leaders, either within our church or with outside of our church, on a pedestal that only God should have? All right, is it possible that you've done that? You can ask yourself questions like, do I express more thanks to God for his work or to a person? So when, when I'm grateful for something, a sermon, someone sharing something with me, a devotional I read, an article I read, do I express more thanks to God or to, or to an, an, an individual? Is, is my praise of a person, is it always shaped by them being nothing and by God being everything? All right, we have plenty of examples, even in Scripture, of, of the right place of giving honor to whom honor is due, right? But, but when I do that, is it shaped by the reality that, that God is all in all and that he ultimately is the one who ought to be receiving my praise? And so if I praise a person, am, am I aware that I'm praising God through that person? Will, will God receive praise in, in this compliment I give to someone or in this attitude I have for this person? All right. I think, I think that the reality is true for us, just like it was true for the Corinthians, that, that our perception can get off about Christian leaders. All right? Our perception can get off. And Paul says, look, we need God's wisdom to determine how we look at God's servants. And what he tells us is servants don't deserve the credit and praise God does. All right? He says in verse number nine, we are God's fellow workers you are God's field, God's building. The emphasis in verse number nine is uniquely on God because in the original language, God actually comes first in all of these things. So he says, God's fellow workers we are. God's field you are. God's building you are. The emphasis is on God's and that's the right place for us to have our emphasis. The emphasis is on what God owns and what God deserves, not on, not on ourselves. So every worker is equally insignificant or, or, or rewarded according to his labor, but, but they're, they're equal, they're together. God is overall, all right? God is overall. The reality is that the biblical view of man is better than the view of our world, all right? It's better. It is better practically and it's better motivationally and it's better emotionally for us to embrace God's perspective of people. So, this goes totally counter to what our culture would tell us, but it's actually good for us to hear that we are nothing and God is everything, All right? Because I think what, what our culture would tell us is we, we need to praise ourselves a little bit more, all right? We need to have a little better attitude about ourselves. We need to give ourselves a little better pep talk about how important we are. And this whole thing about you're just a slave, that doesn't really fit into our ego super well, all right? Um, but it's It's right. It's right for us because it's grace for us to hear that God would reward us at all. God created us to be God-centered. So when we're self-centered, we're going to feel broken because we're being broken. When, when it's, life's about us, when life's about praising a person, we're missing what life ought to be all about, which is praising God. Life doesn't work when we are everything. The church doesn't work when servants insist on being somethings and they want to be known and they want to be followed and the church won't work that way. God must be everything or we will suffer the broken consequences. So we're nothing and that's not just okay, that's wonderful because God is the one who gets the praise and God is the one who gets the glory and that's what we're made to do, which is bring him glory. And so inadvertently, what the Corinthians were doing when they were attaching themselves to a person 
They were robbing glory from God and they were walking into jealousy and strife and immaturity. They were losing their ability to do what God made them to do, which is bring God glory. Because for them, it became all about a person and a personality. Well, there's one more point this morning when we say that God's wisdom ought to determine how we look at God's servants. First of all, fleshly people don't evaluate God's servants well. Second of all, this passage teaches us that that servants don't deserve credit. God does. But lastly, servants get their rewards from God. All right? Servants get their rewards from God, not from people. Verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I think the whole point of of these six verses these five verses, is that servants get their rewards from God. All right, so let's, let's dive into this. Paul has said, the one who plants, the one who waters is one, but each is going to receive his wages according to his labor. In verse number 10, he's going to elaborate on, on what he's talking about when he's talking about a reward, all right? And he begins by talking about himself. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, Notice that even there already, Paul is attacking the arrogance of Paul as somebody who is great, right? What does Paul say? Where does Paul give the credit for what he did? He says, according to the grace of God given me, I did this. Even here, he's modeling for them the humility that says, I'm nothing, God is everything. What I did was only according to the grace of God that was given to me. He says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And that master builder is, is the idea of like an architect, the one who plans one who plans the whole thing out. So it's not, it's not like uh, the laborer who actually you know, built the concrete. It's the one who, 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 laid out, who laid out the idea, who laid out the plans. And Paul says, that's me because of the grace of God. I think Paul was well aware of his apostolic role and his apostolic ministry. Right? Paul had a unique role in the Corinthian church just as he has in the universal church. Paul was an apostle. He was a set-apart one. He was one of the ones that Jesus said, I'm going to make you the foundation of the church. Just like Peter when he said, you're going to be the rock that I build this church on. That's true. And Paul is one of those people. All right, Paul's one of those people that Christ decided to build his church on. It wasn't because Paul was so great. It's because of the grace of God that was given him. But Paul recognizes that, specifically for this church at Corinth, that he's the one who laid the foundation. He was the one who came and presented the gospel to them the very first time. So he says, here's what I did. I laid a foundation. And he says, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Here's his his command in these verses. Take care how you build on the foundation. And the reason you should take care how you build on the foundation is that God is the one who gives rewards. That's, That's why we should take care, because God is the one who gives rewards. Notice he says in verse number 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Why does, is Paul just kind of arrogantly saying, I'm the one who lays the foundation and no one else can do that? No, he's saying there can't be another foundation. 
That's impossible. Everyone else is doing more work because the foundation is laid and there isn't any other foundation than Jesus Christ. There isn't anywhere else to look for a foundation. And I think especially so in, in Paul's day, in, in this time, the, the foundation was so crucial to the rest of the building. Because if you got the foundation wrong, you're going to get the rest of the house wrong, especially when you're, when you're building with bricks. All right? So when you build a brick, if, if your bottom layer is uneven or is crooked, uh, the rest of your house is going to turn crooked eventually. All right? This is the importance, even why imagery like Jesus being the chief cornerstone, he's saying this is the block that everything else gets measured on. So if your foundation is off, your building's going to be off. And, and Paul is saying there can't be another foundation. There can't be another foundation for the church except Jesus Christ. He doesn't say people won't try to build other things on top of it because people do. What he says is if there's a different foundation than Jesus, you no longer have a Christian church. It's, you might be a lot of things, but it's not a church if Jesus is not the foundation. So it's impossible to build on anything other than Christ you could build, but it's, it's not going to be Christian, all right? Any other foundation doesn't just make the building unstable. It makes it a whole different building in Paul's perspective. So laying the foundation cannot be repeated. It's not something you do over again. But people are building on top of it, and he says you need to take care how you build on it because there's already a foundation laid, but the reality is that how you build on top of that foundation is going to be evaluated, going to be evaluated. He says in verse number 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, if you use these building materials, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Right? A lot of people argue about these particular building materials, um, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. What is he, is he ranking them? Is it like most important to least important? What's, what's he doing here? I think the easiest way to understand that is he's basically um, presenting a group of, of two different options, right? I think gold, silver, and precious stones all go together as enduring building blocks. And wood, hay, straw, they all to go together as things that don't endure, right? Because all these things were building materials in Paul's day, right? They, they, they used every single one of these, even down to straw and frequently on their roofs, for instance. All right, so it's not that these are, are building materials that no one ever used. The difference is that some will endure and some will not endure. And so gold, silver, precious stones, precious stones being like granite or marble, so don't be thinking like diamonds and rubies. He's talking about building materials, building materials like granite or marble. That kind of precious stone, um, those are things that will last, whereas wood, hay, and straw, they, they don't stand the test of time. Right? The amazing thing about even ancient, the, the world of ancient Greece, you can, go to, you can go to modern Greece and you can still see parts of buildings, even down to the very square that Paul stood in in Corinth, it's still there. Because there are things that have been made out of enduring building blocks. There are still temples uh, to some of the gods and goddesses that there are still parts of them standing in Greece. Why? Well, because they were made out of things that were enduring. Right? You don't have Joe Schmo, uh, the cobbler's house, still standing. Why? Well, because they just made out of something cheap and then some fire came along and it was gone, all right? But things that were important, they were made out of material that lasted, right? Well, look what happens. He's, he's using this building analogy and he's going to use it to talk about our work because in verse 13 he says, each one's work will become manifest. It will become evident because the day will disclose it. What, what day is he talking about? I think he's talking about the day of the Lord. It's a 
is shorthand for the day of Christ's return and of the judgment that comes with it. So it's, I think the day is the whole package deal because sometimes in the New Testament, the day refers, refers just to the second coming. Sometimes the day refers to the day when unbelievers are cast into hell. Sometimes the day refers to believers being evaluated. It's, it's all, everything that happens when Christ brings an end to time and, and his day comes. All right? So the day is, is a broad term um, in, in Paul's use. He even has used it already in 1 Corinthians, like in um, 1.8. We're going to see it again in, in 5.5. 5, he says um, that the man to be delivered to Satan is to happen so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, this is the day of the Lord that he's talking about. And he says that that day is going to disclose people's works. Well, what, what does he mean? What's going to happen? Well, he says, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. All right, when it says, because it will be revealed by fire, I think he's talking about the day. All right, this is hard. I, I've even gone back and forth in my own mind. Does he mean that our works will be revealed by fire or the day will be revealed by fire? And I think the answer is the day is going to be a day of fire. Um, and, and Paul even calls it that in other places. So, for instance, let me read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. This is what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Right? We're coming up on the season when we think about Jesus being born. He's born as a, lonely, uh, as a lowly baby. But he's coming again a second time and he's coming in flaming fire and in power. It's a way of describing the second return of Christ in a, in a way that reminds us that he came first humble, but he's coming back again as the king. And as the king, he will sit in judgment over all. Same thing in 2 Peter 3.12, where the description is, is the heavens fleeing, or that's in Revelation, but, but the, the day when the, the heavens and earth will melt with a fervent heat. All right? Christ's second coming is marked by judgment and a judging fire that will come. So I, I think when he says it will be revealed by fire, the day of the Lord is going to be marked by this fire of testing and of purifying. And that fire... It says in the end of verse 13, that fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Because that, that work that we have done, verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, right? see we're still talking about building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If, if what's been done on top of that, if it makes it through that day, if it survives, then the servant will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. What's, what's going on here? I think the reality in, this, in these verses is that God is the one who gives rewards. God is the one who rewards servants. What he's doing is judging works. And I think this is super, super important for me to say like as many times as I can. All right? Works are what are being judged here. All right? Notice how many times he's said that your work will be evaluated. All right? Each one's work will become manifest. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on survives, he will receive a reward. All right? this, is, this is not an evaluation of, of your eternal state, of whether you're saved or not. Notice he even ends by saying that even the person that suffers loss, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This, this is not about if you're a believer or not. All right? I think this passage is telling us there is, a, there is a evaluation day coming for Christians to evaluate the quality of the work that they have done building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
especially so for Christian leaders, especially so for them. But I think this applies to, to all of us. There is a day of evaluation coming, and works are going to be what is judged. It says that each one, the work that each one has done, this is an individual evaluation. It will become evident. It will become apparent. There will be this universal unveiling of things that are hidden right now of what kind of work we've done as Christians. Reality is that simply building on the right foundation is not enough. It doesn't guarantee durability. Only the final day will accurately reveal the quality of our works. I think Paul is trying to turn the Corinthians' attention to the reality that Christians will be evaluated for their work, and, and one obvious application is let God be the one that's doing it. Right? He says this, this evaluation, it isn't coming in this life. It's coming on the day. So the Corinthians thought that they could evaluate how good of a servant Paul was or how good of a servant Apollos was. And Paul says God is the one who gives rewards, not the Corinthians. All right? He's already called them God's field or God's building. I think he's trying to remind them it would be ludicrous for the field to determine how much reward the, the field worker gets. All right? the, the field doesn't go, wow, you've done a great job planting, and so I'm going to the building doesn't go, hey, great job on, on building me. Um, I'm going to give you five. No, it, the building, the field, they're not the ones who do the evaluation and they're not the ones who do the rewarding. God is the one who does the rewarding. Notice that it is, it is rewards or it is loss of rewards that is the result. All right. It says that if the work that anyone has built survives, he'll receive a reward. What happens if you don't receive a reward? Well, if anyone's work is burned up, side note for all two of you that are interested in the original language, it's actually burned down, all right? But that's neither here nor there. Uh, if anyone's work is burned up or burned down, um, that person will suffer loss. So you either get rewarded or you have loss of reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That idea of through fire has has idea of like by the, um, by the skin, by the skin of your teeth is not... Um, totally equivalent, but like a brand plucked out of the fire or, or saved right in the middle of it is kind of the, kind of the idea. Um, it would be like a house that's burnt all the way down to its foundation. The foundation is still there, but the rest, of the, house, the rest of the house is gone. That's what the rewards look like for a believer who's built with unworthy building materials. Still a believer, but their works have burned up and there's loss of reward for them. What, what are we talking about when we talk about an inferior building. Well, remember that Paul is addressing this to Corinthians who were doing exactly what he was warning them of, which is using inferior building blocks. They weren't using the wisdom of God. They were pursuing jealousy and strife. And they were building on top of Christ with a church that was becoming increasingly unstable. So imagine trying to build the church with human wisdom and all that that entails. That is unworthy building material. I think... I wouldn't have to work too hard to tell you ways that that could show itself in our modern day, like coming up with marketing schemes and adopting results from the latest polls and imitating whatever is happening on TV um, that looks successful, you know, deciding to go with, with a whole new approach of doing church and, and the, our whole how we do church needs revised and revisited. I, I think that those ideas are more influenced by worldly wisdom than by saying, how does God tell us the church ought to look, all right? I, I have seen 
just in my, even the short time that I've been here, even these short, you know, four years, I keep getting these like flyers and these pamphlets and stuff in the mail that promise me as a pastor that if I would like to revolutionize my church and if I would like to revitalize it and I'd like to grow it way beyond what it, then I just need to do this, all right? And sometimes it's a worship seminar that I just need to go to. Um, sometimes I need to do this package program deal. So if I do, you know, 30 days of this or 40 days of that or 50 days of this or if I do a seven-day this challenge, or, I mean, they just like, there's no end to, you just need this other scheme and then your church is going to be awesome, all right? Because obviously it's not right now. It's like lame. And, and so, you know, uh, well, what's the problem with that, all right? The problem is that they're inferior building materials if it's not based on the Word of God. All right? If it's not based on this reality, not on the coolest, latest, hip thing, then in reality, in three months, th- that fad is completely over, and it's time to move on to the next fad. Um, this is human wisdom. And yet we live in a day that's inverted the value system, and so I think the wood and the hay and the stubble of human wisdom is actually prized over the gold and the silver and the precious stone of God's wisdom. The, the people who practice human wisdom, they dominate our Christian news. They're celebrated as the greatest successes in America, and they sell books and conferences and seminars at alarming rates, when in reality, our work must be Christ-centered and word-driven and grace-motivated and spirit-empowered and ultimately God-glorifying, because there is a God who will give rewards for faithful work. Paul says, God is the one who gives these rewards. I feel like I need to clarify, just because this is the, the one passage in the New Testament um, that has been used in an attempt to validate the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, I feel like I, I need to double back on that. So, so bear with me for, for just a second as we think together about this passage. This reward is not about salvation, all right, I've already said this is about works, it's about works, it's about works, but this is not about salvation. Paul was writing to the Christians in Corinth when he explained this judgment, what would happen for people who built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and then worked for Christ from a, from a pure heart. This moment does not determine if a person is a believer, but it's for evaluating the quality of the works that they did. The, the text itself, I think, doesn't even give us room to see this as as some kind of purifying or even punishing work. The decision is, will you receive reward or will you not receive reward? It's not about becoming a better Christian. Uh, it's, not, it's not about a process you'll have to go through for years. This is a momentary judgment. This is not about facing sin and having that sin purified from out of you because you never faced it earlier. All right? This is even different than the Catholic doctrine of, of purgatory, but, but we Protestants have our own versions of having to face sin again, right? I, I will forever be scarred, and I will forever remember what I call the screen theology. All right, you guys know the screen theology? Screen theology says, here's what's going to happen. One day, um, you Christians, you're going to die, and you're going to face God. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take your sins and you put every single one of them up on a screen. And you're going to have to face every unconfessed sin you've ever done. So you'd better start confessing your sin. All right? I don't know if you've ever sat in a message like that, but I have. All right? And I've heard if there's anything that you've done that you haven't confessed, you're going to face it again. All right? That's not what's going on in this passage. All right? This is not about facing your sin over again and for everyone to watch and be like, oh, I can't believe he did that. All right? It's not what's going on here. Um, so it's not... 
This is not Catholic purgatory or Protestant purgatory. Let's remember places even from Old Testament to New that remind us of this. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Sounds a lot like scripture reading we had this morning, doesn't it? Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All right, let's glory in the gospel that says there is no condemnation for those in Christ. That means there's not, there's not purgatory, there's not punishment waiting for you. God isn't dangling your last unconfessed sin over your head, waiting for you to get to heaven and him beat you over the head with it. There's no condemnation for you this morning if you're in Christ. None. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen, this is for us, beloved. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering, God made you perfect for all time, even though even right now you're being sanctified. There does not remain judgment for us. And this, this fire that we're talking about in this passage is not about you being judged and facing your sins over again. Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lenski wrote, No inquisition will or can be made into any believer's sins because in their place will be found only Christ's blood and his righteousness. This is not a judgment about sin. I love this, I love this old hymn. Top Lady wrote it in 1772. Let me, let me read it to you. I, some of you may have never even heard it before. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid what e'er thy people owed. Nor can his wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my wounded surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest, The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his effective blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. This is not an evaluation of whether you're a believer or not, or what sins you will face again. But the reality is that God gives rewards based on faithfulness. This is not even based on success or how big the building is. Based on faithfulness and those motivations that drive us for his glory. This judgment is not opposed to God's grace. It's a celebration of God's grace because it was God's grace that was given to Paul that he was this great builder, and then God decides to reward him for the grace that God had given him. This is God's grace mammothly on display to us. God has rewards 
for faithful servants who use quality building materials, the wisdom of God and the word of God done in the spirit of God. Now, maybe that's not, maybe thinking about if this is a punishment or not isn't even what has you hung up this morning. Maybe you're going, is it even appropriate to think that God would reward me for doing something? I mean, if God's going to reward me, doesn't that mean that my, my service is somehow now like I'm, I'm doing it selfishly because I know that God's going to reward me? And I think the answer is rewards are entirely appropriate because that's exactly what Paul's saying and it's something that Jesus said himself. I think the reality is that we cannot escape the teaching about reward in the Bible because it's in numerous places. And even Jesus himself lived in light of reward. Think about Hebrews 12 too. Jesus, for the joy that what? That he was experiencing? That he had already had? No, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, all right? There is value in us being able to say, God will graciously, not because I deserve it, because of his grace in me, he's going to reward me for faithful servant, faithful service. And so it matters that we be faithful servants. Rewards don't rule out the validity of service. They motivate us because Paul's point is, take care how you build. Be careful how you build. So when it comes to evaluating God's servants, we need God's wisdom because God is the one who ultimately will evaluate if our works were good or not. So a couple final applications. One, we can ask God for grace to do works with enduring quality and value. We can praise the God of grace who gives rewards for works that he enabled in the first place. We can work for Christ diligently knowing he will evaluate our service. Three ideas from this passage. Fleshly servants, fleshly people don't evaluate servants well. So we need to make progress becoming less and less fleshly. Servants don't deserve credit. God does. So we need to remember the Christian leaders are servants, and we need to give God credit. And lastly, God is the one who gives rewards to servants. So be careful how we build on the foundation that is laid, which is Jesus Christ.